Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Connor. We are joined today by Dr. Leticia Donquette, and we're going to be talking about her 2021 book, um, Iranian Literature After the Islamic Revolution. Leticia, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we always here like to start with your story of uh, where you're from and your journey to, to writing the book. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. My name is Leticia. I'm a French-Australian scholar. I'm based at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And I spent all my childhood and teenage years in France. I grew up in the suburbs of Paris. I was always into books and readings, and I read lots of French books and then classics of world literature. And then I discovered Persian literature one summer after my BA in philosophy and literature. And I started reading a lot about Iran and Afghanistan. Um, I read Persian literature in French translation. I'm really connected with it. So just... Yeah, it just started from reading Persian literature in French translation, and I decided to start Persian studies in Paris. I love the language. It's very musical and poetical, and I really, really wanted to go to Persian-speaking countries. So eventually, after a year uh, of studies in Paris, I decided to go to Iran and to enroll at the university there. So that was in 2005 and six. So I went to Esfahan first because it's a more manageable city to deal with than Tehran. Tehran is crazy. I love it, but it's it's crazy. So I spent a few months in Esfahan and then I went to, to Tehran. And there I met lots of students from the UK. Uh, so I decided I would continue Persian in the UK. So I went to uh, SOAS, which is in London, uh, to do my master and PhD on contemporary Persian literature. So when I was in Iran, uh, although I started being interested in the country by reading classical literature, when I went to Iran, I discovered contemporary literature, and that's become my focus. And I'm really interested in Iranian culture in modern and contemporary times. So, yeah, so I did my PhD at SOAS and then was looking for jobs. I got my first uh, postdoc um, 
at Harvard. It was a Fulbright Fellowship, and then I applied to lots of jobs everywhere in the world. I got one at UNSW in Sydney, and then it became a, a permanent position. So I've been at UNSW for 10 years now, so quite a long time, and Australia has become home. Excellent. If we can back up just a moment, um, you wrote a book about literature, Iranian literature, and it's contemporary, but I want to know what it was about, whether it was classical or contemporary Iranian literature. In the beginning, why do you think you connected so much with it when you first started reading it when you were younger? Yeah, I so the first I started to read was Mulana, so Rumi uh, in French translation, and I loved it. And there's also a French novel by Joseph Kessel called The Horse Riders, The Horsemen. I'm not sure about the translation into English. Uh, and it's a wonderful epic novel about Afghanistan. So it's a sort of mixture of these two uh, reading classical Persian and this wonderful epic novel about Afghanistan sort of sparked my interest in the region. And, and then it's really the language that drove me to want to learn more about Iran and eventually to, to travel there. And, you know, I was young, I was sort of 1920. So it was also time to, when I wanted to explore and, and do things. And at first I wanted to go to Afghanistan it was 2005. It was a bit tricky, uh, so I decided to to go to Iran instead. And it's been it's been. Um, I mean, it was a very enriching year, uh, a bit of a crazy year, and I had lots of issues to get a visa and to be able to stay there. But it was it really changed my life. You know, it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but uh, it changed you know my way to see life. And Iran has become a, a part of my life since then. So I'm really grateful I could do this. It's amazing. What was your entrance then to the contemporary literature world for Iran? At the University of Esfahan, I met girls at the university who introduced me to contemporary and modern uh, short stories and novels. And I had, you know, never read anything like this. And I, you know, it was also based on friendships. You know, we connected, they introduced me to things and I found that interesting. So it was... Um, it was based on, on these relationships I had in Iran. And then the fact of being in the country and discovering everything that was happening at the time. And, you know, it's a very vibrant culture. Um, so I just really wanted to know more about what was happening these days and not in the past. So that's, um, you know, I went to lots of art exhibitions and music and concert, and that's really connected me to, uh, to contemporary culture. That's amazing. So your title kind of tells it all, but I want you to maybe tell us a bit about what defines contemporary Iranian um, literature and why is the revolution an important moment in this? Right. That's a big question. Uh, I'm not sure I actually end up defining Iranian literature because it's very complex and it's very divided in a way. So when I started this research, actually, I started with the premise, with the hypothesis that Iranian literature from within Iran and Iranian literature in the diaspora are very well connected. And your listeners might know that there's a very big Iranian diaspora in Western countries and they're very active culturally in cinema and literature and so on. When I started this research, I was you know, thinking about it in Iran where you have lots of 
movies and music coming from the U.S. and there's lots of exchanges in between mostly the U.S. and, and Iran in terms of cultural production. So I was thinking, oh, the same thing must happen with literature. But actually, there's, there's quite a bit of a disconnect between what happens in the literary field in Iran and what happens in the diaspora. So I would say that they are sort of two separate fields. That's maybe a way to define it. You've got the, the literature that happens within Iran and the literature uh, that happens in the diaspora. And both are very rich, but they work very, very differently. And of course, in the literary field in Iran, you've got the, uh, the question of sanctions and censorship and a very restrained literary field due to politics and the diaspora has its own sets of issues. So, so yeah, I suppose that's, that's one thing I would say to start with, but I also didn't want to, you know, the, the two are sort of separate. And when we look at the scholarship, Iranian studies is quite separate from the study of the Iranian diaspora. So I wanted to write a book that would try to connect them and to uh, make the link at the academic level between these two spaces to, to sort of look at them together at the same time to, to connect them. You you have a quote in the book, something along the lines, this isn't exactly right, but something along the lines of um, the writers in Iran see those that are in the diaspora as traitors and vice versa. Maybe this is too strong of language, but have you seen a sense of animosity towards the two groups or how would you explain that that um, that relationship? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think it's less the case when you look at filmmakers or, you know, people who produce music, you don't have this same sense of disconnect. But when you deal with literary production, and maybe it's linked to the language, to the fact that when you leave Iran, you lose your connection to the Persian language in a way. So it means um, there's this disconnect with what happens in Iran. And I did find that a lot of, uh, you know, people I talked to in Iran were finding that, you know, if you are an Iranian writer and you left the country, then you're, you're sort of forgotten. And Iranian readers from within the country are not so much interested to read the production of Iranian writers in the diaspora. And, and I think it might be because the Persian language is, is evolving very, very quickly, maybe more quickly than, you know, if you can think of French or English or other European languages. There's, there's less, uh, the evolution uh, is less quick, but Persian has been evolving very rapidly in the past decades. So if you leave the country for 10 years, uh, you, you, uh, your language will be very different uh, from that of the younger generation. And Persian language pretty much defines the literature in Iran, right? It's very rare to find a minority language that's publishing. Yeah, so that's that's something that's uh, problematic within the Iranian field, which is that everything is connected to the Persian language. It's very the the regime and the government uh, are very centralizing in terms of language. Uh, it's very difficult to learn a minority language, and Iran is full of minorities: Kurdish, Turkish, Arabs, uh, laws who cannot uh, use their language in in school or in publications. So eventually, it means that when we talk about the Iranian literary field in Iran, it's mostly the Persian literary field. You do have exceptions and you've got some small publishing houses in Turkish, in Tabriz, and, and they are maybe becoming a bit more important, uh, but it's it, we're 
talking about very small scale, and that's mostly linked to this policy of centralizing uh, everything around Persian, which which is something that the Islamic Republic has done, but it was also a policy of the previous regimes. It's been very much something that started at the beginning of the 20th century. Nation state, huh? Building the Iranian nation state, absolutely. Um, can you kind of lay down the framework for us for what the censorship looks like inside Iran? What what sort of hot topics are they looking for to not be published in the country? Right. So censorship is a complex issue because you. I think you need, in the case of Iran, you need to look at it in both what is censored in terms of, you know, the, the words you cannot use, the scenes you cannot use, the language, but you also need to look at the propaganda aspect. Censorship also means that uh, the regime is going to support certain types of text and of writers and of uh, ideas. So I think it's important to have this dual uh, elements in mind. I would say that censorship, I mean, at, at the very beginning of the revolution, there was a period of a year or a year and a half when lots of things were being published. And it was a time when um, publications were booming. Very soon after, when the war started, uh, the regime started to control the publication and to take everything in its hands. But it takes a few years until they uh, implement uh, specific laws. And the laws have always been quite vague. So because of that, it's possible to... I mean, there's a lot of fluidity in the way that censorship is implemented. Is implemented. So it means that it up to a point, it depends as to who is Minister of Culture at this time, who is the censor who gets your book, um, even if you have connections or if you are if you can bribe the censor, you know, there will be lots of possibilities of uh, negotiating and also of um, fluidity as to what is going to be censored at a certain time. So a book might be censored and then a few months later it will be back again on the shelves and, and the reverse happens. I would say probably at the very beginning of the revolution, because the idea of the revolution was very much to create a new Islamic society, to create a new Islamic literature, it was very prescriptive. It was very much, you need to write about this and this and that. And it was the war as well. And the war effort was very important in terms of cultural production. The war was called the Sacred Defense, the Faye Moradas. And the Sacred Defense was, you know, the way the regime organized uh, the production of its values and its ideals and how it implemented it in terms of uh, cultural production. So because you had this very prescriptive agenda at the beginning, it was quite defined how the censorship model worked. And throughout the years, it's become a bit looser. And these days, it's more about um, the censor decides that you cannot use this word or that word, and it's mostly linked to morality, like you cannot talk about kissing, you cannot talk about anything intimate, for example. But it doesn't go to the same length as it used to um, after the revolution. So I think today they are using a lot of softwares like to look for, you know, the, the, the bad words like 
everything that deals with morality or consumption of alcohol or gambling or these kind of things. But you don't have the the same um, the censorship implemented to the same extent. Uh, and interestingly, you have uh, now the censorship has been sort of um, it used to be the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, which was organizing the whole process. And now, because they are overwhelmed with um, books. Uh, sometimes um, they give the censorship to freelance outside companies. So that creates, you know, difficult and problems in their own terms because then you deal with, you know, different people and, and uh, a problem of coherence in the implementation of censorship. I guess as an example, how challenging do you think it would be for your work here to get published in, in Iran and why? The book you've written um, here. My book, actually, it's it's very important for me to have my work circulated in Persian. Um, so I've tried to have this book translated. It's been a bit difficult, but I'm hoping it will happen sometime soon. I would probably have to delete um, the whole chapter three because it deals with censorship and basically you cannot really uh, write about it um, in those terms. And I would probably have to delete some terms and words that are not deemed appropriate or some ways of phrasing political um, political moments um, that that are not uh, appropriate at, at the moment. But I, I think I would be okay with it. Um, the, you, you might know that Iran hasn't signed uh, most of the uh, global copyright agreements. Uh, so my work is maybe even circulating in Iran at the moment. Uh, so I, I don't know about it, but it might it might already be there and, and circulating in, in a different shape. And, and yeah. Well, that kind of leads us into the black market, I suppose. Um, and I, it, you, I think you make it pretty clear in your book that the people in Iran do like to read the books just like everyone else in the world that cover topics like kissing and these sorts of things. And so there is a market for it, I think, in, in Iran. So what is the nature of the black market? How do the people get a, get their get their hands on that on these on these on these works that don't make it through the censorship process? Yeah, so you've got uh, what we can call black market, or you can call it underground, or unofficial, or whatever. There's many terms for it, and and lots of books are circulating through that. With the arrival of um, dig- digital literature, it's been a lot easier to have access to uh, forbidden publications. So you, for example. Lolita by uh, Nabokov um, is is a banned book, so you cannot have access to it um, in Iran at the moment. But you you will find it in bookshops around around the main uh, the main place where you've got all the the uh, second street second hand bookshops and uh, and bookshops and sellers uh, around the University of Tehran, or you will find it online. So it's pretty easy to access forbidden literature um, if you know how to navigate this space. And sometimes it's not even, you know, it's even in the broad daylight, like um, around the University of Tehran, you've got all secondhand booksellers who have their books in the broad daylight and it's possible to buy uh, all these books. And sometimes the police is going to arrive and uh, ask them to wrap it up. But most of the time it's okay and they're just selling it as it is. If if we're talking about the underground and the black markets, I'd like to say something about the fact that I actually expected to find a lot more of black market and underground publication when I started this uh, research. Um, 
so you you have a lot of this informal circulation going on and people selling um, in the metro or in the streets rather cheap copies of forbidden books. But you don't have a lot of first-hand publications that go through the black market. So you don't uh, uh, writers try to tend to get a permission to print from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance and try to get through the official channels. I think there's, you know, largely like everywhere, there's there's a desire for recognition by the institutions, and so publishing in the black market and underground for for a first time publication is not as prestigious as, um, you know, having a proper publication. So you actually don't have a lot of these sort of black market books that would tend to be about hot topics and difficult topics, banned banned topics. Hmm. Okay. Oh, I had one more question with that. Sorry. I wanted to ask about foreign literature coming into Iran and how I'm assuming it goes through the same censorship process, but I'm more curious how popular is foreign Mm. literature in Iran? Yeah, foreign literature is very important. You've got about 30% of the literature that comes from uh, translations of foreign literature, and it's very big. If you compare to the US, only 3% of uh, the market of literature is from translated books. So that's a huge difference. Uh, European countries are more in between sort of 15%. So Iran is is at the very top, especially in terms of prose. Novels and short stories um, of foreign literature are are the most popular. And you would be surprised to see, you know, books that are just published in the U.S. or even not yet published in the U.S. uh, have already appeared um, in Iranian bookshops. Um, The fact that Iran hasn't signed the Copyright Convention, the Berne Convention, means that the publishers can you know, get access to the text and publish it without having to pay copyrights. Um, So it means that you have a lot of translations easily accessible. One of the issues with that, unfortunately, is that translation, um, you, you have a lot of translations and not all of them are of very high quality. So there's there's very big market for translation, but it's also a bit unregulated and not always of top quality. On the question of copyright, I should say that there's been a bit of a shift in the mood of publishers in the past maybe 10, 15 years, because a lot of uh, publishers, especially independent publishers, realize that the state of affairs where they don't buy the copyrights is actually negative for them. It means that publishers from uh, European countries see them as thieves, you know, they see them as, you know, publishers will just get the book and do whatever they want with it. So they've tried to informally join the global book market by trying to buy the copyright, even if it's for a very low price, and they try to negotiate it and explain to publishers the special circumstances of their own. But for example, a very big publisher, Ofor, uh, has been doing this for many years, I think 12 or maybe 15 years, like buying the copyrights for all uh, the books it publishes in translation. So that's, that's a trend that you see increasing. So would works like books by Dostoevsky and J.K. Rowling make it through the censorship but just lose a lot of the the juicy stuff in the book, lose a lot of the meat of it, or how, how, how does that go usually? Yeah, they definitely make it. Uh, and you, I think there's maybe 10 different translations of Harry Potter, for example. 
and it's a big, it's been a huge bestseller from the beginning. It is, it is censored. And when you look at, at uh, the, the details of the books which are censored, translated literature is maybe a little less censored than literature in Persian. Um, but it's still quite, you know, censored and you can uh, be asked to delete certain chapters and certain sections. But mostly it's, it's out there and accessible to, to Iranian readers. But of course, there will always be books that will not be published uh, in the Iranian market. For example, I'm thinking of the memoirs of Farah Pahlavi uh, that will never be able to be published in, in Iran. Anything that deals with the previous regime uh, will, will not be published. And I mean, a big part of this is that Iranians, of course, have the internet and are crafty and can find a way to read the books they want. Along with that, with the internet, you talk about the blogosphere and this world of uh, posting on online, Facebook, uh, places of that in nature. Um, what's the landscape with that, with sharing thoughts and ideas in, in Iran and the diaspora. Yeah, yeah. so blogs have been really important in Iran at the beginning of the 2000, around 2005-06. And, and there was a time that the internet was not really censored because the regime wasn't quite sure what to do with it. So there was maybe a year or so of uh, really a blossoming of literary texts online. So at that moment, that sort of shifted things in the literary field. After a year or so, uh, censorship was implemented online and things came back to, to normal sort of. But you still see some spaces of freedom and resistance online that you cannot see in print. For example, you can publish some erotic poems online that you would never see in print. It, it sort of goes you know, through the net. Um, and if the writer is not very well known, or if um, he or she doesn't publish only these sorts of poems, then that's okay to to publish them online. It doesn't mean that uh, it's always okay, and lots of online literary people have been arrested and jailed, and and, and censorship is is very strong. But you do see those spaces of um, of freedom online. I would say that the blog literature have, has had an important impact on the evolution of the literary field in, in the sense that the short form has become a, a lot more important uh, to the evolution of Persian literature. And that has been a direct influence from, from the blogs, uh, from the literary blog. Since blogs are not there anymore they're not important anymore but since the mid 2010s you've got instagram uh, which has played a very important role it's not uh, mostly it's not banned and so a lot of the uh, evolutions that you see in contemporary Iranian literature today uh, happen on instagram i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I was kind of hoping to wait to the end of the interview to, t- to talk about this, but when you're talking about social media, I thought of the protests that were happening you know, the last few months. And I guess here I'm in the U.S. and I would see musicians and people of that nature post um, protest songs on the internet and then hear, oh, they're in jail now. And so um, I guess... What can you speak a little bit to what the space of the internet is as a form of revolt for Iranians? I know it's not quite in line with literature, but it's all kind of related, I think. Yeah, yeah, the internet has played an important space in promoting certain types of protest and also promoting certain forms. I'm, I'm thinking poetry is very important in the way that the these protests have taken shape in the past few months and you see uh, a lot of slogans that are very much poetical slogans online and that's that's where you you see this sort of new forms and, and cultural production happening so yeah it's been it's been very important but the regime is very good at uh, you know managing the speed of the internet and cracking it down on you know certain spaces so it's also it's also a, a mouse and cat game of uh, something is happening in in one space and then the regime is cracking down and and that moves to a different space. You used to see that, for example, uh, newspapers are have maybe less importance today than they used to have 20 years ago. But you used to see, you know, important discourses and ideas in certain newspapers and the newspaper would be closed on. And two weeks later, you would see the same people, the same journalists writing a new newspaper with a new name with basically the same, you know, sentiment, same ideas. So that, that's how things are, are moving. Some, some spaces are closed on and they move to, to different spaces. But of course, that means that the whole dynamic of resistance is sort of stopped and, you know, people are stopped in their track. And it's a very tiring game for Iranians. Well, I guess moving to the beautiful side of the culture, um, you mentioned a couple of times being in, I believe it's the International Book Fair in, Book Fair in Tehran, I think. And I was wondering if you could take us for a walk through the fair, what it, what it feels like there. Um, what do you see? Which, what books are there? What books are popular there? What books are not popular there? And kind of your, I guess, a little bit of your analysis of all that. Yeah, so the International Book Fair is a big cultural event here on. I must say that it is an event that is organized by the government mostly. So it has this governmental input to it. You do have independent publishers coming and and being out there. But in the past 10 years, you've seen many independent publishers having trouble to expose certain books or even being banned from attending the book fair. So it's not a a neutral uh, space. It is a space that has this governmental touch on it. But it is a moment at which literary practitioners get together and there's this encounter with readers. I must say also, it's a very popular space. you 
don't have a lot of times in Iran where young people can meet in, you know, in a public space and, you know, have fun and discuss sort of without being too much seen by the morality police or their families. Or um, So the book fair is a space where you basically meet up and hang out with boys and girls. So that's, that gives this element of fun to the book fair you have you also have a very big children's section so children's literature is very important in Iran it's a pretty well organized and professional sector and the children's literature section in the book fair is, is very big and it's you know full of colors and balloons and kids running around so it's quite nice um, but you also have as uh, a very governmental section with as uh, very heavy Islamic publishers or the publishers coming from other Islamic countries like from Palestine or from uh, Syria, you know, the, the regime sort of linked to the to the Iranian regime. Mostly these sections are not very well attended, but they're there and they're very important to uh, how the regime sees itself and deploys its sort of soft cultural diplomacy. Sure. Well, with that and with the genres that are popular and not popular, I was wondering if you could do a bit of compare and contrast with I guess the genres of literature that get traction in, in, in Iran, but maybe not in places like France, Australia, and the U.S., and vice versa. So what's kind of the difference between these places of what's read and what, what, what works in the West and what doesn't work there and what's the other opposite mm-hmm. of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the literature published outside of Iran is quite specific. In the U.S., you've got a lot of memoirs, for example. It's become a bit more diversified in the past um, maybe five, six years. But um, from from the 2000s, you used to have lots of memoirs by Iranian-Americans, for example. It's a bit different in France or in the U.K., where you have more short stories and novels. Uh, in Iran itself, you don't have a lot of memoirs. That's not a genre that's really important. But you do have things that maybe are surprising for a Western audience, like you have a lot of romances and they are very popular and uh, lots of people, mostly women, read them, but they're very popular and they're everywhere. And I'm saying it's maybe unexpected because, you know, I mentioned the fact that it's impossible to talk about intimate relationships and you might not expect that romances are a big thing, uh, but they are in a very Islamic way. And very often the ending of the romance is not at all what we would expect as, as a Western audience. It's very much about re-implementing the rules that Islamic society think are appropriate for a relationship between a man and a woman. But you've got all these developments within the story. And, and these romances are changing as well. And it's about women and men engaging in, in different ways and maybe meeting each other in at university or at work. So that also brings some changes and some negotiations that you didn't see uh, some time ago. You've got a, a segment of literature that's mostly never translated into Western countries. That's the sacred defense literature I was mentioning before. There's been one text translated called Da. What is it in English? 
I forget the title um, in English, but it, I think it's called One Woman's War. And this is this is a memoir by a woman who was at the war front and she talks about her ordeal and uh, she's very much aligned with the ideas of the Islamic Republic and the text has been supported and promoted by the regime. So it's this sort of text that you see a lot in Iran that you usually don't have a glimpse of in Western countries. This one has been translated, but that's the only exception I can think of. And a lot of uh, a lot of people in Iran have to read this text because they're like on the curriculum. You get them as a as a student in school in that university, but you know sometimes they're not very um, big bestsellers. They are very much about the same topics and they're quite formulaic um, in the way they function, but they do exist and they form a very important part of what the literary field looks like. Are they sort of a promotion of Iranian nationalism? Is that kind of what the idea of the sacred defense is? Yeah, it's about it's about the narrative around the war against Iraq. So that was between 80 and 88. And uh, it's very much this narrative that Iraq attacked us and we defended ourselves because we are representing Islam and we are, you know, the good. And there's this whole notions of uh, martyrdom and sacrifice uh, that comes into it. It's very much male-dominated, but in the last sort of 10, 15 years, you've seen more text written by women who might have been nurses or even, you know, the wives or sisters of uh, people at the front and who tell the, the stories of how the war unfolded for them. But the war was very, I mean, the, the we, we talk a lot about the Islamic revolution as this watershed moment. And of course, it was a watershed moment. But what really crystallized the regime, and especially in terms of culture, was the war. The war was this moment when, you know, all the, the, the messy discourses of the revolution could be um, put on the side and it was a moment where they could um, bring together uh, what they wanted to do with this Islamic society. So, yeah, it's important to, to keep in mind that the, the war is really a moment when, when everything crystallizes and when the regime establishes itself with very uh, unified um, ideology and discourse. Sounds like it's safe to say that the New York Times top sellers don't quite align with what the what the top selling books are in Iran, or would you disagree with that? <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but you do have, for example, the the memoirs of Michelle Obama when they came out, they were very big on uh, in Iranian bookshops. So, yeah, sometimes they overlap. <laughs> good for her. <laughs> um, we touched on it a little bit, but would you say that the diaspora literature, do you see more authors and poets and such? Do they try to, would you say they're they're, they're uh, trying to let go of their Iranian past or embrace it, fit in more with the place they're living now? How would you kind of explain how the average uh, diaspora author kind of navigates those waters? Mm. It's it's difficult to say they're doing you know one thing because it's quite diverse and I would say it's probably very country specific. So you see certain trends happening in the US that you don't see happening in France or in Australia for that matter. So, for example, in Australia, we have a, a specific genre of writing about uh, being a refugee and making this refugee journey. Uh, you might have heard about 
Beruz Bouchani was an Iranian Kurdish journalist. He wrote a book called uh, No Friends But the Mountain. It's specifically about that, about this uh, Pacific Island prisons. Uh, so you have this in Australia that you would not see in other places. So yeah, I would say that Iranian literature is dependent on, on the context uh, in which it inscribes itself. And Iranian writers have been very good at integrating themselves into the literary fields into which you know they, they come. Uh, so very often they put Persian on the side and start to use English or German or French and they participate in the cultural and literary institutions of, of the new countries they belong to. So you've got this sort of different sort of small spaces of Iranian literature happening in many different places um, around the world, in the US, in France, in, in Germany, in Australia. Uh, so that creates sort of different clusters of Iran outside of the borders of Iran. And very often it's not in Persian, it's in the local languages. You do have some of it in Persian and you have publishers uh, publishing in Persian in the diaspora. You've got big publishers in uh, a big publisher in France called Nakoja. You've got publishers in the US. You've got some in um, the Netherlands, but but quite often it's also in the local languages. So you could say that you have not one Iranian lit- literature, but Iranian literatures in the plural. Do you find that the experience has been similar for filmmakers in the diaspora as well? Uh, I would say no, but I'm not I'm not an expert in it, so. I'd prefer not to go too much into it but I think it's very it's been very different from for filmmakers and there's been a lot more exchanges and interactions with the uh, cinematic field within Iran and with the diaspora in in the past four decades towards the closing of your book you mentioned something along the lines of you find that the nature of literature is changing a bit in the modern day and it's maybe becoming more media-focused, digital-focused, video-focused. I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit. It's interesting. Yeah, it's probably so. The, the book is quite descriptive, I think, because I really wanted to give a chance to the complexity and the many stories of Iranian literature to um, be expressed. So I'm trying not to have very strong argument in general in the book, but in that last chapter, I'm, I'm bringing up this argument that literature in Iran is is taking a bit of a different shape. It's becoming more visual and it's not particular to Iran. I mean, we see this happening in in most literary fields um, because of um, the importance of of social media and so on. So I think it's also important not to see Iranian literature as, and Iran uh, for that matter, as absolutely different and specific and unique. It has its unique characteristic, but it's important to make comparisons with other places and you know, as we were saying before, Iranians are, you know, living their lives, and you know, life is happening, and it's important to um, to not exclude it from uh, global trends, even though it is somehow disconnected. Anyway, I'm going a bit off tangent here, oh. um, but yeah. So in that last chapter, I wanted to say that yeah, Iranian literature is is taking a, is taking a bit of a different direction, and maybe it's less important today than it used to be in the past. Uh, we know Iran is a very literary nation. Uh, poetry, especially, is very important to everyday life. We've just mentioned the protest 
than Zendegi Azadi. And in the protests, you see how poetry is used on a daily life basis. But you have less, um, like literature is becoming maybe less important in the Persian cultural system than it was in the past because it is more intermixed with visual media. So maybe a better way to say it would be to say it's not less important, but it's more mixed with other media and with other elements. I totally agree with you that I think it is a global phenomenon that people are reading less and people are looking at videos more. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that's happening everywhere. One thing I do admire, though, that I think is unique to Iran and other places, but not happening where I'm from, is that uh, poetry is a part of like the daily life for the Persian culture, it seems like. It seems like people are quoting poetry a lot, and I think myself and my friends, like we don't usually quote English poetry that, that often. So I just wanted to say that's, that's, that's like one aspect that I admire about that culture. Um, I think that's great. And I guess it inspires me to learn some more poetry. Yeah, no, it's, 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 very, it's, it's, very, <laughs> it's very obvious when you travel to Iran, poetry is really, you know, there um, in, in the way Iranians function. And it's, it's a bit of a cliche to say so, but it is very, it's still very much the case. So I should say that the book doesn't speak so much about poetry because poetry functions in a very different way from prose. So I, I do talk a bit about it, but poetry has its unique ways of functioning. It's a lot more linked also to uh, the way the nation represents itself. The, the government is heavily invested in poetry events. So um, that's, that's quite different dynamics um, in poetry than in prose. Well, I was wondering um, if you could take us for a journey through maybe like your favorite um, classical Persian piece of literature, your favorite contemporary one, and maybe like your favorite author or work that's from the diaspora, just so myself and other listeners can read a little bit after this. Hmm, that's interesting, because I'm, I'm looking at Iranian literature with this sociological lens. I, I usually actually don't do close readings of texts. I do have a lot of favorite authors. One of my favorites is Zuya Pirzad. She is uh, an Iranian writer from the Armenian minority. So Armenians are Christian in Iran, and it's it's a fairly big um, minority and quite well integrated. Um, so Zuya Pirzad uh, has written uh, many books. Most of them have been translated into English and other European languages, so you can easily find them online. And she's um, she's a woman, and she's she's talking about small moments in in women's life that change how they think of their existence of their place in the community of their relation to their husband of uh, so it's it's very subtle but it's i think it's very representative of a certain trend of persian literature which which deals very much with what happens in the space of the home because the public space is a bit of a, a space where you cannot do many things. You cannot have these, you know, interactions with persons of the other sex. So a lot of things are happening in literature within the home. And you there's actually something in Persian, we call it uh, uh, the literature 
of the apartment, right? So, so she's very much representative of, of that and of that trend of women's writing since the revolution. So there's been a lot of uh, women writers coming up after the revolution, and that's maybe one of the paradoxes of the Islamic regime. But also, I, sh- I, I should say that there are a lot of women writers, and they are very prestigious and dominant on the literary scene. Uh, the whole ecosystem of um, literature is still very much owned and dominated by men. So publishers are mostly men and, you know, people will make decisions at the literary level, um, at the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance and so on. So that's still very male-dominated. But you do have a lot of uh, women writers and, and women readers, of course. All right. That's great to hear. I want to know, too, what, what do you miss the most about living in Iran Oh, that's uh, that stuff, and that's a bit sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I miss everything. Iran is a is a is a place very dear to my heart. So I miss just wandering in the streets of Sharon and going to bookshops and going to art galleries and taking crazy cabs and you know the food and listening to bad Tarantulas music in taxis. Um, <laughs> Uh, after the uh, women life freedom movement, things have shifted quite drastically, I think, in Iran. And there's been a lot of changes at the uh, literary and cultural and university levels. So, for example, lots of uh, scholars I used to work with at the university have left and have had to leave for political reasons. So, I think there's been lots of uh, massive changes. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a bit of a difficult time for for Iranians and for everyone who loves the, the country. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing this book with us. I just want to tell listeners that you should Google the book because the cover is gorgeous. It's turquoise at the color, and there's um, a beautiful photo on the book. Could you just talk really real quick about the cover of the book? Sure, and how yeah. yeah. So, so the photographer is Mariam Firuzi, and she's a photographer based in Iran, and the image comes from a series called Reading for Tehran Street. So, uh, and she's got maybe 10 pictures of Tehran streets. Um, and the one I chose for, for the cover really speaks to uh, a few of the ideas I'm, I'm mentioning in the books. There's uh, something about children's literature and uh, something about women's writing and so on. So, yeah, I was really grateful that she accepted to um, uh, for me to, to use the image for the book. All right. And we always have to ask here, what are you working on next? Um, I'm working on a new project on publishing industry in Iran. So it's more uh, about going into the archives and looking at the history of the publishing industry. Uh, I'm going to write a very classical history of the publishing industry from the 50s to today, like looking at archives of publishers, memoirs of publishers. There's a lot of material in Persian. Um, But it's not really a field that scholars from within Iran are interested in in or, or working on. So there's a lot of things to manage, a lot of material to manage and, and quite a lot to write about, I think. So yeah, I'm quite excited. There's, there's a big yet yeah, files on my computer um, that I haven't started to open, but I know I will find treasures in them. So I'm really excited. Well, that sounds awesome. Let us know when it's out so we can talk again. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the uh, time here to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.